Okay, well every blessing to you all and welcome back to my walking talking pulpit. For early March it is bitterly cold, not to mention very windy. Yesterday I was out and about and got caught in an avalanche of hailstones. Somewhat unusual for early March. The day before that it snowed for around an hour but the snow didn't last very long so because it's been so cold and uh, because the open air pulpit will be just washed with rain and mud and the terrain will be too dangerous for me to stand on for today if I may I want to come to you all from the walking talking pulpit and uh, speak about Cromwell, Freemasonry and the King James Bible. In 2015, I think it was October time, I wanted to start a new project on Oliver Cromwell and Patrick was very uh, successful in finding a used book for me to start my research off with. An 800 page book written by one of Britain's top historians and I was very surprised that he was able to find such a book for me. When that book came out around I think the mid-1990s to buy it would have cost you around £25 which is around $40 maybe €35 Euros. quite an expensive uh, book to purchase if you went out and got it new but uh, by the grace of God and his providence of course Patrick was able to find a used copy for me which cost him 50 pence that's right 50 pence which is no more than a a euro I think no more than a dollar and it's always a great blessing when a bargain comes your way so I sat down October 2015 and I started to plow my way through this almost 800 page book written by one of Britain's top authors like I say and I was uh, somewhat surprised how uh, generous the author was about uh, Oliver Cromwell because Cromwell has been very much smeared, maligned over the years. If you live in Britain and you're saved you know perfectly well that the greats are very much in decline and those that stood for the Lord are very much earmarked out just completely uh, erased from history we have no heroes anymore in fact most Brits are ashamed to be British so I wasn't overly sure how this book would come across I wasn't overly sure how the author would uh, portray Oliver Cromwell quite possibly England's finest son well to my surprise like I say the author comes across very well and she puts him in a good light and that wasn't surprising enough this woman is a Catholic and I may come back and discuss more of her later but I knew straight away that looking at a book 800 pages long would take me some time to work my way through as always I'm working on different projects at the same time so from October 2015 to perhaps January February 2016 I was dipping into it each and every day or maybe every other day and for whatever reason I had to put it on hold and uh, start working on other projects and commit more time to other projects well about two weeks ago or so I felt the urge to return to my Cromwell project and I got my book opened went straight to it and I was surprised when I looked at my notes that I've been able to 
accumulate maybe five pages of notes and I was up to around page 280. Well over the last uh, few days I've been ploughing through this book again, making more notes like I say, and I think as of two days ago, I just passed the 300 page mark. Very interesting book, and I've got to hand it to this author that, as a Catholic, as an historian, she does a good job, very impartial, and not just impartial, but very consistent as well. She would criticise him over the uh, Charles Stewart incident, Prince Charles I of course, which I may come back to later, and at the same time she criticises the Catholic Church as well. But let's just back up if we may, let me say this as well, that what I'm going to try and do uh, between now and the end of the year is finish her book, look at other books that I want to get on the man and consult a DVD that was made about uh, Oliver Cromwell back in 1970 and that will allow me to approach the man and his legacy from multiple angles it's not enough just to get one book on one person and make your mind up on that one source alone if you can dig deep and uh, read as much as you can well Cromwell was born in 1599 and he came from a pretty uh, modest background his uh, parents were in the brewery business and much has been made of that he would start off very much in the reformed camp he was a Calvinist and he would quote the Geneva Bible as he grows England is very much on the cusp of a civil war and during his time at the realm he would see uh, two civil wars it has been suggested by the author of this book that I'm currently reading through that he was a Welsh Jew which would explain why he was such a brilliant tactician there's one account uh, when he was in uh, Wales and word got to him that the Scots had mobilised 12,000 men and they were marching from uh, Edinburgh down to London to rescue the King King Charles I and old Cromwell this real uh, man's man very much loved his men and his men loved him was able to march 8,000 of his men from Wales to Wigan uh, a distance of around 140 miles it took him nine days to make it and when he got to Wigan he was able to meet this army of around 12,000 Scots Catholic Scots hold them off fight them and push them back to Scotland along the way he would have uh, many battles with such around the Preston area and I've been there and the uh, Lancaster area and I've been there and by the time he got to the borders of Scotland he had killed 2,000 of these men and arrested many more during the time of Cromwell's leadership Catholics were allowed to worship in their own homes they were allowed to practice their faith but what they weren't allowed to do were to carry arms or to consult with foreign powers meaning they couldn't be spies and they couldn't be part of foreign powers which is fair enough and it comes down to this that living in Britain in the 17th century if you were a Catholic or a Protestant to some extent you had a lot of rights you had much freedom and it's always worth comparing what it was like in Britain 
to those overseas. People can be very critical of such an era and say, well, he went over the top here, referring to Cromwell, or he went over the top there, referring to Cromwell. Well, go to Catholic Spain in the 17th century, or go to Catholic France in the Catholic 17th century, or go to uh, Catholic Belgium in the 17th century, and just read about what it was like to live in such a place. And you will see very quickly that they were uh, totalitarian regimes, dictatorial setups, no democracy. And if you were a Protestant around that time, you had almost no religious rights. So living in Britain at that time gave you much more freedom than has been initially thought. So Cromwell was able to march from Wales to Wigan, meet this Catholic Scottish army, defeat them, push them back into Scotland and disband their army. Quite a remarkable event. When it came to the arrest of Charles I, a uh, treacherous king, and even the author of my book says so, it would fall to Parliament and it would fall to the House of Lords to debate the king's fate. Well, the majority of uh, those in the House of Commons voted to impeach him and also to execute him. Over 50 people would sign his death warrant and she puts a photograph of the death warrant in her book and Cromwell's is the third name on such an infamous uh, death warrant. Cromwell was very aware that there would be the potential for vengeance, payback from Charles II, uh, his second son I should say, Charles I's son, who would later become uh, Charles II. But that didn't uh, put Cromwell off. He had Parliament on his side and the House of Lords tried to block it. A tiny minority tried to overthrow the will of Parliament, like they are doing in Britain at the moment with the Brexit vote. But Parliament prevailed. The King was detained and publicly executed. Just a quick footnote. After the death of Cromwell, Charles II came to power and what he wanted to do was to hunt down those men that uh, killed his father and he did what the North Koreans did a few weeks ago in uh, Malaysia. Some of you may be uh, up, up to date on this event. Some assassins were sent from North Korea to Malaysia to eliminate the half-brother of the current leader of North Korea. A team of around 12 people were dispatched to Malaysia and two women have been seen on camera executing him in broad daylight and they've been arrested and charged by the Malaysian government. Well, Charles II would also do the same thing. He would put a team of assassins together and his orders are quite simply this. Find those men that killed my father and kill them. And this group of assassins travelled the world. They went to America and they tracked down all of those men that put Charles I to death. What a grudge. And yet that's not really spoken about much, is it? When they found the body of Cromwell, he was dug up, his head was cut off and put on a pike for many to see for many, many years. That was the hatred that Charles II had towards Cromwell. But ask yourself this, what else could Cromwell have done? He was faced with this sympathetic uh, Catholic king wanting to uh, use Catholic mercenaries to march on England, which again is mentioned in this book written by a Catholic historian of all people, what was he meant to do? 
if you try and overthrow your country, if you try and bring revolution to your country, you know that you face pushback. You know that you face the potential of being arrested. I think Cromwell has been very much maligned, very much smeared. Yes, he was a Calvinist. Yes, he was into replacement theology and uh, reformed theology. Wasn't necessarily a King James man either, but I believe he was a saved man. I believe if it hadn't been for him, or if it hadn't been for Walsingham during the time of Elizabeth I, Britain would have fallen. The Catholics would have come along and imposed their tyrannical reign over such a nation as ours. But when we look at Cromwell, and if you speak to Irish people about Cromwell, they hate him. They deplore him. And some years ago, before I was saved, I went to Southern Ireland to meet my relatives up in years. And Patrick, of course, uh, joined me. And off we went to Southern Ireland to visit our relatives, all Catholic, long before we were saved, of course. And on the one hand, they were pro-Britain. And yet, on the other hand, they were very anti-Britain. Cromwell, of course, was much a derided character. And yet, if you compare him to the Catholics, if you compare him to Catholic leaders, he was far better. He was shown much more liberty. Uh, he was much more easier uh, to get along with. But I remember during our time in Ireland, back in the mid-1990s, before the Good Friday Peace Agreement, sitting in a pub, of all places, with some of our friends, Irish friends, and friends of friends, and I guess there were probably about eight of us sitting in this pub, a bar in Dublin, or outside of uh, Dublin, a place called Connemara, from memory. And I got into a pretty heated debate with this Irish guy, and he was very anti-British, very anti the British, very anti the British Army. Now, at the time I was a Catholic, but I was also a Brit. Now, of course, I'm still the latter, but I'm not the former. So as a British Catholic, I was somewhat torn. As a British Catholic, I was pro-Britain, uh, still am, of course, and was pro the British Army, still am, of course. And I clashed with this guy for 20 minutes, going back and forth with him about Britain and Ireland and this and that. And I remember a friend of mine at the time who was in the British Army, and he told me that during his two uh, two years in the army he spent I think six months in Ireland how the Catholics hated the army and the Protestants were suspicious of them that's how he put it and he said to me that it was a very difficult posting because at the end of their uh, days on the streets guarding the streets or patrolling the streets they would go back to their barracks and were locked in they couldn't go anywhere because the Catholics like I say hated them would try and kill them and the Protestants were suspicious of them. Very difficult posting. And this old friend of mine, unsaved of course, was lamenting, was reminiscing as to how bad it was during those times. And it was very interesting to hear him recall such uh, memories of his time in Ireland. Well, as I say, I got into this pretty heated debate with this uh, friend of a friend who was very quick to put Britain down and the army, so on and so forth. And looking back at it now, it was quite dangerous because we were in the middle of Southern Ireland. This is pre the Good Friday uh, peace agreement. 
which I think took place in 2000, no, hang on, 1999. We were there, uh, 1993. 1994, where the year's gone. And to be arguing in a pub, a public place where there were people listening, could have gone either way. It wouldn't have been unheard of for a couple of uh, Catholic guys to come in with weapons and uh, just shoot me on the spot for our little party. And I'm not exaggerating either, because in those days it was very risky to uh, speak out aloud about what you believed in. But I put my case forward that the British Army were doing the best they could, not necessarily perfect. And of course he wouldn't accept this uh, guy that I was clashing with, very anti-British, very this and very that. And in the end we had to agree to disagree. But according to the book that I'm reading, Ireland back in the uh, 16th century was split. Uh, it was a split kingdom. It consisted of uh, English, Welsh and Scots. It wasn't a Catholic country. It wasn't just for the Irish. It was uh, inhabited by the Brits, the Scots, the Welsh and of course the Irish. Cromwell be later sent into Ireland to deal with the uh, persecutions that Protestants were experiencing. In fact, I think it's 1641 or thereabouts, 200,000 Protestants were murdered by the Catholics, 200,000. And yet it's never spoken about. And if you try and raise such a statistic, you are slapped down. Well, Cromwell, as defender of the faith, as uh, England's finest son at that time, a great military tactician, was sent to Ireland. And I will discuss more of that when I get uh, to my article later in the year. Well, if you speak to people about this era in British history, the subject of the King James comes up and people say, well, was King James a Freemason? And the answer, of course, is no. Freemasonry, if you don't know, didn't really begin until 1717 or thereabouts. There's nothing on paper about Freemasonry before that particular point in the 18th century. So James was not a Mason. Freemasonry, like I say, Freemasonry like we see today, didn't really exist until the 18th century. The translators were not Freemasons either. They were Calvinists, like uh, Cromwell. They were Reformed, like Cromwell. They were into replacement theology, like Cromwell. But they weren't Freemasons. And I think that, for many of them, they were probably saved as well. So be mindful of uh, such historical facts when it comes to Freemasonry, Cromwell and the King James Bible. What seems to uh, happen every so often is that some of the greats are slandered, some of the greats are criticised, some of the greats are smeared and Cromwell has been smeared terribly over the centuries as has King James. These men of course were not perfect, they had their failures, in fact one of uh, Cromwell's uh, ongoing problems would not only be depression, which he suffered of, he suffered with a lot, but he'd also suffer with gout and he would suffer with long periods of indigestion. At the end of each meal, according to the author of the book that I'm currently reading, he would uh, suffer with three hours, or he'd suffer three hours of indigestion. He was very much a man marked by the devil 
and he would work this guy over all the time and yet Cromwell persevered on loved his country loved his army and his army loved him his army began incidentally with just 10 men and his army began began with just his own family it would later uh, develop into the English army which like I say were able to mobilize and move from Wales to Wigan in nine days remarkable if he was a Jew that would explain why he was so successful in how he lived and operated because the Jews are beloved for their father's sakes and that's one of the reasons why Jews are so successful in the world today because they are the chosen race and one day when it pleases the Lord he will pick 144,000 from a jury wherever they are in the world so if you are a Bible believing Christian and are critical towards Israel or the Jews check yourself out Cromwell was very friendly towards the Jews he showed them a lot of leniency as you would uh, to the Catholics as well not those in authority but just everyday Catholics much freedom in Britain much freedom during the 17th century but you see if you are a typical Catholic or a typical Christian the chances are you've been brainwashed the chances are that what you have uh, heard about such a man from such an era is incorrect that's why you have to dig deeper and that's my goal for the remainder of 2017 to dig deeper into Cromwell and uh, the 17th century in Britain fascinating time but when it came to the death of uh, King Charles I it would appear that it was legal above board although the author of my book is somewhat critical of such a decision but of course she would be she is a Catholic and yet in other parts of this very interesting book she's very impartial so like all things you have to dig deep and on top of that you have to filter the good from the bad also just a quick footnote concerning the Ireland campaign when uh, Cromwell had to uh, go over there and deal with the Catholic IRA not known as the IRA at the time and he would deal with that incident referred to as the Great Famine and uh, according to folklore people were having to survive on potatoes maybe some truth in that but what you weren't told is that the Jesuits were also very busy around that time sowing discord and exploiting the situation of Irish Catholics much like the Muslims do in Israel in fact if you are following the uh, ongoing controversy concerning Israel's expansion on their God-given land you are probably not told that when the Jews build on their God-given land they not only purchase the land to do so but they have to do so via the Islamic Mafia you see what seems to be happening in uh, parts of Israel and the Palestinian territories like would happen back in uh, Ireland during the uh, 16th, 17th and 18th century you'd have the Catholic Mafia known as the IRA very much dominating such people but in Israel in the Palestinian territories you have the Islamic Mafia dominating such people and what seems to be happening in Israel is that when the state buys up land to build on they have to go through middlemen and they have to go through this group known as the Islamic Mafia and what they do is they force 
Islamic occupants to sell to them for a fraction of the price and then sell to Israel at a much higher price. So your beef, if you are against the extension of Jewish settlements, isn't with Israel per se, it's with the Islamic Mafia. They are forcing just everyday Muslims in Israel and the so-called Palestinian territories to sell to them. Here's a little thought for you. Aren't they very blessed to live in such a land? I mean, if you just think about this for one moment, in the Middle East you've got 250 million Muslims, probably more, dominating a lot of land, and you've got this tiny uh, state called Israel, the size of Wales. Why not take those Palestinians? Why not take those uh, Muslims and put them in Jordan, or in Iraq, or Iran? But of course they won't do that, they want to stay back, they want to be a thorn in the side of the state of Israel. Times never change. What Cromwell was up against concerning the island, uh, the island campaign is what Israel is up against concerning the Islamic campaign. And that's why it's so important if you are a secular historian or a fan of history to dig deep. That's why it's so important not to be so quick to believe what you read, like all this fake news. But my goal will be to finish this great book, consult other sources, and then put an article together. It's such a fascinating uh, era of British history, and yet I think we as Brits have only been given so much of the facts. We have been very much uh, duped and deceived, and also deluded when it uh, has come to the true facts of the matter. Because of the ecumenical movement, most Protestants have uh, capitulated, have thrown their lot in with the Catholics, and are no longer defending men such as Cromwell, who defended the state, who was a defender of the state, and also the crown. It wasn't Cromwell's goal, incidentally, to execute the king. Cromwell wanted to save the king. Cromwell wanted to spare the king. Cromwell would pray for the king. Cromwell, on many occasions, tried to save the king's life. But he knew that if Charles I got his own way, he would bring Britain back into Romanism. He would uh, force Britain to become Catholic. And Cromwell said, no way. We've got our freedom. Like Brexit again, we will never be under Europe again. We want to be sovereign. We want to be independent. And therefore, Charles I would force Cromwell's hand and like I say he would be one of 50 plus signatories or signatures uh, that would sign the death warrant of King Charles I but I put it this way had the boot been on the other foot Charles I would have hunted down Cromwell and killed him there would have been no trial as such in fact Charles I was given a 10-day trial he was actually given a chance to appear before his uh, accusers and speak for himself. That wouldn't have been awarded to Cromwell or people such as him. And that goes back to Britain in the 17th century being far more lenient, not perfect, but far more open, far more uh, hospitable if you compare it to Catholic France or Catholic Italy or Catholic Spain around the same time. You couldn't criticize the papacy in Catholic Europe in the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th century. In fact, in Poland today, they've got a new uh, Catholic government. 
And if you criticize Catholicism in Poland today, you can be arrested. And I mean 2017. But in Britain, you had more freedom of religion. So dig somewhat deeper if you want to know more about this era concerning British history. And keep me in prayer as I return to my research on Cromwell. I hope to finish my research by the end of the year and we'll put an article together and perhaps a video as well. Also, as always, you're more than welcome to join us every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. UK time as I stand on my feet for just under 45 minutes reading through the Word of God. And this coming Sunday, Lord willing, I will be looking at Revelation 18 and I will aim to finish the 18th chapter. Very fascinating piece of scripture and uh, I would invite anyone anywhere in the world to join us to get a great blessing. So on that invitation, I will sign out. Wish you every blessing and happiness. And Lord willing, next week, if the weather improves, return to my open air pulpit. But for now, I will sign out and wish you every blessing again. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.